Hey, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to what you're going to be producing here uh, as we, I don't know if you can, um, maybe you can see some of this. I don't know if you know what we're going to be looking at today, what bit of uh, the acts we're going to be reading through, but uh, we'll get there in just a moment, but really looking forward to the works of art that are going to be produced uh, in the next kind of few minutes. We're in Act 9, if you want to kind of line yourselves up there in your Bible. I don't know if you know when, I mean, perhaps some, when you, you turn on your computer or your phone and it says something like, it needs an update, it needs uh, some, something to be installed in your phone. And then sometimes it says, this will require a reboot. This will require the computer, the phone, to be turned off and on again. There's something so deep that needs to be installed and, and fixed and updated that you can't do it on top of everything else. It can't be put in on top. Everything needs to be shut down and started again. And you kind of switch, either it does it automatically or you turn your computer off and you get that kind of black screen and you wonder, is, am I ever going to see my files again? But then surely, hopefully, they kind of, uh, after you hold your breath, um, some lines of code began to appear on the screen. If you've got a, a PC, if you've got a, a Mac, you'll get a less helpful kind of um, uh, progress bar. And, but then nevertheless, something is going on, you know. There's something that's being installed at a very deep level. A reboot is taking place. And we're going to look at a, a person who gets a reboot. We're going to look at a person who was living one way, and then there was a, a reboot such that something deep was put in him. Something was installed that wasn't there before at the deepest level. And we're going to look at what was not working properly before, what instigated this reboot, this reinstallation, and what was the result of that. And we're going to be looking, of course, at uh, Acts 9, the story of Saul and his encounter with Jesus. By the way, if I say, I was, I'm tempted to say, if I ever say Paul, uh, when I'm in the next kind of 20 minutes. He changed his name to Paul. His name was changed to Paul, wasn't it? And I'm bound to say that, Paul, because uh, in my head it's Paul. I tempted to say, eh, but don't do that every time I say it. And maybe I'll get through the next kind of 20 minutes or so without kind of making that mistake. But at this point, he's called Saul. So let's read. Let's read just the first bit of this chapter. So Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christian men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they, lay him by the they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. He was proving and explaining and demonstrating to people that uh, Jesus was the Christ. So we'll, we'll, pull, we'll just stop there in terms of our, our, our passage and, get, and make the most and draw out the good in, in, in it. We'll do that, I think. I thought it'd be great to do that by three things, three statements that Jesus says here in this passage. Three things he says to Saul. The first is, why are you persecuting me? The second is, I am Jesus. And the third is, you will be told what to do. So we'll just briefly unpack each one of those things. So first, the why question. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul had been, he'd stoned this young man called Stephen. He'd given approval as that was taking place. Then he'd gone from house to house, and Stephen was proclaiming Jesus risen from the dead. And then he went from house to house, and he, he was dragging out men and women, Christians who were believing this message, and he was imprisoning them. He was persecuting them. But more than that, then he said, they, they started to scatter. They started to kind of flee from this terrible persecution they were experiencing, this terror of what Saul was doing. And so they began to go to different places further and further away. And Saul, he wanted to go and get them. So he got permission to go to these different towns and cities and, and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem where he could see them face a punishment for what they were saying and what they were doing. And Jesus asks him, Why? Why are you doing that? I love it that, that God often asks us why questions. He doesn't need, it's not like he doesn't know what's going on. He's not finding out. I often find I do that in our, in our house. I go, what's, what's happening? Why, what's going on? Like, bring me up to speed. But God doesn't need to do that. He knows what's happening. He's asking, obviously, for, for our benefit. You, you remember, he, he asks of, uh, of Cain, why are you angry? Right, the beginning bits of the Bible. Cain, why? What is going on? Understand what's happening in your heart. He's highlighting things in our heart when he asks us questions. And so he's asking Saul, why? Why are you doing this? Think about it. What is going on that you'd be doing such terrible things? And it's a good question for us to ask as well. I wonder if we know why Saul is doing this. And I wondered, began to think, why, why such fierce hatred of Jesus and his followers. And I looked in Stephen's speech for clues because if we remember reading Stephen's speech, at the end of it, the Sanhedrin and those around are furious and they gnash their teeth. Can you imagine how angry and furious they were at Stephen for what he said? So I wonder, what did Stephen say that made them so, so angry, boiling mad? And as I read it, basically, he just gives a summary of Israel's history. But here's what made them mad, it seems to me, or certainly part of it. All the way through Israel's history, he kept giving them an F. He said, you failed. 
God did this, but you failed to do what he asked you to do. God sent a prophet. You killed the prophet. And it culminates in, in God sending his son, sending the righteous one. And you, you killed him. It's an F. He keeps giving them an F. You have failed to live up to this, the standard that God requires of you. And it seems to me that if the, you want to make people angry, it's to hint that they, they've morally fallen short. It, it feels uncomfortable. When, when someone tells you that you haven't done well in something. It touches on a nerve, because we have fallen so far short of God's perfect standard, and there's something in us, an instinct that knows it. And yet there's a defensive mechanism that takes place when we feel accused of something, or when someone says we haven't reached the standard that God's required. There's an anger that can come up. Anger's often a defense mechanism to push something away. And often the more that we've worked hard to try and be good enough, the more that we've convinced ourselves that we are good enough, perhaps better than those around us, the more even that we know secretly in our heart that we have failed, sometimes the stronger the reaction can be. And people say things, don't they, like, don't, don't judge me. It's pushing away this deep knowledge that actually we have fallen so far short of God's perfect and holy standard. And that, it seems to me, is what Stephen is proclaiming. You failed, you failed. And each one of us have failed in the same way to meet God's perfect standard standards. And it made Paul angry. And it's worse than that in some ways. See, Paul was, if, he was as good a person as you might imagine in that context. Zealous to keep God's law. Zealous for it. Trying his whole life to do it. People would have looked up to him. He would have looked down on others. He was kind of a religious role model, a moral role model. And he knew it, and he would have felt it, and it would have seeped through his whole being. And here was this message, you've failed. You've not, in fact, been good enough, though you've tried. And though you've made massive sacrifice to do so, you have not reached the standard that God required. You can imagine that made him boiling mad. But it's worse still. We're not told here specifically, but we know from Paul's writings that he, he, he knew this. The, the gospel message, the message that was being proclaimed was that you have failed, but in Jesus, you can get it all for free. He, he did it for you. He kept the law. He's the righteous one. The righteous one that was spoken of in the prophets. He came. He lived our life in the way that we should have done it. And he died the death that we deserved. And through faith in him, we get it all for free. Imagine how boiling mad that would have made him. Someone who had tried so hard to reach God's standard, thought they had done it, but didn't realize they're a million miles away from it. Because that's how good God is. He was angry, fuming, this crazy, blasphemous message. This Messiah, this Savior who would come and who would die for sinful people. He was expecting a Messiah, a Savior to come and congratulate those that have reached the standard, those that have done well enough. But actually, this Messiah came, this Savior came to die for those that had failed. It made him angry. Saul, Saul, why are you angry? I wonder how this message makes us feel. It, it, it divides people sometimes in terms of how you hear this message of grace, the goodness of God in Jesus. I wonder if you're a bit defensive about, hey, 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 I don't like this idea that I've fallen short of God's standard. I'm a good person. I don't, I don't, I don't need saving from my sin. I don't like the idea that, that bad people could be forgiven and that those, those like me who, 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 who I think I'm good enough could, uh, could be rejected because we've not reached the standard. I wonder, I wonder how you respond to Jesus. I wonder how you respond to the gospel. If you're anything like me, I've responded in different ways over my life. 
the one here, God was asking Paul, why? Why are you doing this? Why so angry? But the next thing I want to look at is that Jesus says to him, I am Jesus. This is the next little phrase that we're going to look at. And this is so, so important. Previous to this encounter, Paul thought Jesus was dead. He thought, this is an, this is an easy answer to this uncomfortable feeling that I feel, this guilt that's rising up within me, this, this, uh, I want to push this gospel away, I want to push this Jesus away. And they're, they're saying he rose from the dead, and how ridiculous is that? And I can dismiss this message. And then suddenly, there is Jesus, right in front of him. And I don't know about you, there's something that occurs to me when someone stands in front of me, that I know they're real, I know they're alive. I know there's a, there's a genuine encounter that Saul had here with Jesus. He knew suddenly, immediately, that Jesus was alive. And suddenly that made him rethink. He had to revisit his previous understanding and decisions and convictions about this message about Jesus that he had heard. Remember, this is not quite a vision. He's, people around saw a light. This wasn't a private vision that he was having, although he, he heard and saw more clearly. People around saw something. People around heard something. There was something physical, although slightly veiled, that was happening. Others didn't see the detail of it. In fact, they were thrown to the ground. This is about as real an event as you could imagine, albeit there being some mystery around it. Paul encountered Jesus in a very real and public way. One commentator writes this, a leading authority on Paul. He says, the one thing we can be absolutely sure of was that as a result of the experience, Paul knew with the inescapable conviction of direct experience that Jesus, who had been executed by Pontius Pilate, was alive. The resurrection of Jesus that Paul had contemptuously dismissed as fraud proved to be a fact as undeniable as the nose on his face. He encountered the resurrected Jesus and everything changed for him. Everything had to be revisited. Now, we might think, well, that's very well for him, but what about us? I don't know, many of us, not many of us have encountered Jesus in, in this way. And some people do encounter Jesus in visions and in, in different ways, but, but for many of us, it's not how we encounter Jesus. But actually, we have Paul's testimony as concrete um, a testimony about this encounter, about his encounter, and actually, it wasn't God's plan that everyone should encounter Jesus in the same way. In fact, it was God's plan that we would encounter Jesus through this kind of testimony, that we would look at this and think, do you know what? This is sound and solid. We know historically that Paul was persecuting Christians. This is not just made-up stuff. He was persecuting Christians. We know that we've got it. He wrote so much of this. This is what he wrote, a lot of the New Testament. So what made the change? But it seems to me that it's very reasonable. It's the best um, hypothesis to say, do you know what? I, I think he encountered Jesus in the way that he testified that he encountered Jesus. And then I add that to the testimony of Jesus' first disciples who, who knew him for several years, who saw him crucified and put to death. And then he ate with him, and he walked with him, and he talked with him, gave him food, eat it, to see that he was alive. This is, this is strong testimony. This is real. And we can encounter Jesus through their testimony. There's a historical weight to this, but there's also a spiritual encounter that comes through it, through their testimony that Jesus is alive. You remember Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's many of us. Blessed are you if you've not seen, but you've believed. There's been a, uh, you've seen the evidence, and yet there's also been a spiritual awakening that's happened, and you've encountered Jesus. 
He's alive. Jesus prayed, my prayer is not just for them alone, talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's many of us. Jesus praying for many of us that as this message would come about his resurrection, we would believe something would happen in us and we would take hold of this message. It's happening in Saul, but right now we have this black screen. We have Saul's black screen. There's a, a reboot that's happened. He's encountered Jesus and the, the lights have gone off. I mean, literally, in some ways, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. He's encountering something of a dark night of the soul. He knew Jesus was alive. He'd met him, but he was not jumping up and down celebrating at this point. He, he was not celebrating and thanking God for his grace, not just yet. I think he, he saw enough and knew enough to know the, the depth to which he had fallen. All those years of self-righteousness were boiling off at this point. He was having to process them. Perhaps they were flashing before his eyes, the things that he did, that he did to think, he did them thinking it would make him good enough for God. And now he'd encountered Jesus in something of his glory. And the, the lights had now gone off. Woe is me! He was having that kind of experience. It often happens as God moves by his spirit. There's a conviction first that comes upon us that lasts sometimes for quite a while where we realize, woe is me. Is there mercy for me? Can God forgive me for the things that I've done? With The weight of what we've done suddenly becomes apparent. It was hidden from us before. We were under some kind of anesthetic, and now that is taken off as we're beginning to come to new birth. Paul was realizing the depths of his sin before a holy God. Martin Lloyd-Jones remarked once, the first sign of spiritual life is to know you're spiritually dead. Someone else said, don't tell me about when you were saved. Tell me about when you were lost. Tell me that moment. That's so important that you knew how far you fell from God's good and perfect standard. Did you know how holy God was? Or had you marked yourself pretty much, yeah, I got there anyway. I've, I've done pretty well. Just go back. Get before God. Have this, this time, this moment to know how much you needed his grace and his kindness. And it, it took, there was, was it several days? Is that what we just saw? It was for three days he was without sight. I think we're allowed to see a spiritual kind of dynamic going on there, even in the physical. Saul knew he was dead. This was power off for him. The, the stoning of Stephen suddenly coming before his eyes. All those people thrown in prison who were still in prison, suddenly in his mind. I wonder about you. You remember that time. Maybe you're even experiencing it right now as you hear about the goodness of God. We've all fallen so far short. We mustn't rush on too quickly from that moment. But the next thing we're going to look at is the final thing that Jesus says. You will be told what to do. And I love this because he's had this amazing personal encounter with Jesus. And yet Jesus doesn't kind of have this. He doesn't then say, right, now you and me, Paul, can go and do some stuff together. He immediately involves others. He immediately plugs Paul in, it seems to me, to the church. He connects him with the church. And this is perhaps one of the first things we can go through now in terms of this. We've had lights out. We've had this first sense of grief. It's beginning to experience the sense of loss. And, and, and I've, I've wrecked my life and I've, I've, um, I've not lived up to God's standard. Now we're beginning to see this kind of the text appearing on this black screen. And the, the next one is this connection to the, to the church that he's experiencing. He's immediately told, go, and you'll be told what to do. I want you to be plugged in. I want you to, you're, you're, you're not independent, Paul. You're dependent on those around you. So he, he sends him to, uh, to a, just an ordinary guy, I guess, to be told what he must do. 
And I don't know about you, but I remember hearing the gospel and immediately others gathering around me, helping me take my first steps as a new Christian. I couldn't do it without that. I often look back and think if, if no one had come around, if no one had kind of encouraged me in those first even hours and days, I might not be here. But in God's sovereignty, this is how he works. He get others around us. No matter how dramatic our, our kind of our experience of Jesus, we need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to be there for each other. And, and Saul, almost I said it, Paul, it, he needed it. He needed that. I love it, this massive encounter. Now you go and you'll be told what to do. You submit yourselves to others. You, you, you listen to them. You hear their, their direction. I'm going to speak to you through them. So wonderful. And it's just great as we even today actually think about it. We've welcomed people into the local church, this kind of church here. As, if you're a believer, you need to be connected to a local church. You need to have others around you who can help you find God's direction. You can tell you, tell you what you must do. We, we don't just have this direct line to God all the time. Wonderfully, we're made to be in, interdependent, that we hear from one I think of the wonderful times where God has spoken to me through others and given me counsel and direction through others in the church. It was the same for Saul. So second thing, he regains his sight. And here's a wonderful moment. There's a lot happening at the same time, but just to kind of uh, unpack it a little bit. I th again, I think we're allowed to see, I think the reason why there's a physical thing going on is because there's a spiritual thing going on, and it helps us see what is happening. This is where the scales come off his eyes, not just of his physical eyes, I think with his heart, and he sees the grace of God for him, for me. I thought I might be excluded from this because of all the things that I had done. Remember, he talks about himself as the worst of sinners. He, he was probably thinking about that, maybe for other people, maybe for those Christians that I've, I've put in prison, maybe for Stephen who was stoned, but surely not for me. Surely not now I know how far I have fallen from God's perfect standard. I've, the things that I've done, the things that I've said, the things that I've thought, surely not for me. And then the scales come off his eyes. Again, as Ananias is with him. And he sees, I think he sees the grace of God is for him. And then I think we can see then everything starts to turn around. He's, there's rejoicing that starts to happen. But that's not all. Let's go to the next thing. He's filled with the Spirit. Things happen kind of at the same time. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God comes to reside in him. He has this wonderful baptism, this launching, this immersing, this plunging into a life in the Spirit, which is a life in the very presence of God. For the rest of his life, he would know this. And there's all kind of wonderful things that come from this, uh, being filled with God's presence. There's a knowledge that you are a child of God, and your spirit with God's spirit cries, Abba, Father, you just know. Wonderful. There's power and equipping that comes, and he would need that for all that God had called him to. There's a strength and a boldness that would come to him as, as God himself took up residence in him as part of his people, the church, emboldening and empowering. And he's built into the church at this time as he was filled with the Spirit. And again, I could ask us, are we filled with the Spirit? Have we been plunged, launched into this life in the Spirit that God has for each one of us as Christians to follow him, to know our, our sonship, to know the love of God for us? We're filled with the Spirit that we know how much God loves us. We're filled with the Spirit such that we can be bold in proclaiming it and effective in proclaiming it and living it out. Father, we pray, fill us with your Spirit. Unless we come to worship in just a little while, would you pour out your Spirit upon each and every person here who's thirsty and hungry for you, maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the first time. Lord, we're loving this reboot that we're seeing here. And finally, just uh, well, one or two more things here. He's baptized in water. And again, encouragement to you, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, to get baptized in water. They've got uh, a tank under there, 
And it'd be wonderful to have some baptisms coming up. Maybe even you're, be- you're becoming a Christian right now. Maybe you're going through this process, this kind of reboot process. And we would love to kind of see that come to completion as you're baptized, as you, you identify yourself so completely with Jesus and his death counting for you going down into the water and his resurrected life at work in you as you come up. You're united to him in every way such that his relationship with God, Abba Father, is yours by the Spirit through faith in Jesus. I'd love to see folks get baptized coming out of this kind of lockdown period where it's been a bit more tricky. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, get baptized as a believer. If, you're, uh, if, you're, if you become a Christian, know this, that this is the part of the boot process, the initiation process. Know your sin, turn from it. See that God's grace is for you and put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Be filled with the Spirit. Get baptized. Often these kind of things overlap and it's uh, not as, as neat and tidy as we would like, but I hope here we're seeing these things happen to Paul in his reboot. And finally, we get this wonderful, uh, he immediately goes out and starts telling people about Jesus. Immediately. And I, I'm not quite sure where to put this. It is almost a foundational component of becoming a Christian that you just, you just tell other people, wow, you know what, we, what I've discovered? You know the grace of God that's come to me? Even me. Each one of us has a kind of a testimony of even me. You wouldn't believe it, but God's grace was there for me, even, even though the things that I did. And he's there for you. He was there for Paul. He's there for me. He's there for you. Wonderfully, I love it that Paul, he doesn't waste any time. He's straight out, and he's sharing the grace that he has found.